Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Tales from Tolt. My name is Dwayne Davidson, your host. This is a program where we discuss the fascinating and rich history of that place we call the Sonoma Valley, basically from Monroe to North Bend. Welcome, everybody, uh, for another episode of Tales from Tolt. I've got a very special guest, and I can tell you, I've really been looking forward to this interview for the last two weeks since it's been scheduled to be done, because this is going to be a really good one. Alan Miller is joining us today. Alan, welcome. Thank you, uh, Dwayne. Glad to be here. You almost have to know Alan Miller if you've been around uh, Duval or read anything about Duval history. There's a few people that we owe a huge amount of gratitude about documenting history for, and Alan is right at the very top of the list. He's written so many articles for numerous publications, many of which are for sale down here at the Historical Society. You've done a remarkable job. His commitment to detail and getting the facts right are just amazing. He's primarily a railroad historian, but he's been interested in the entire uh, Valley history, and he's going to be a much appreciated guest today while we talk about uh, riverboats. Now, Alan, I think if one of these riverboats were just magically to appear and pull up here to Duval right now, that would be quite a spectacle, right? That would get a crowd down there. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it would. It's hard to imagine that they ever did come up when you look at the river. It really is. And let's talk about that for just a moment. You look at the river and you wonder how did a riverboat ever come up here? Well, first of all, there was a necessity because there was no railroads at the time. Uh, basically, the only transportation was by wagon, horse, or canoe. And so there was, an, there was a need for it. There may have been more water in the river from a whole array of reasons that we could talk about for hours. But even with all that, there was a, quite a few days this river wouldn't allow for navigation, right? Yeah, especially in the summer months like we're experiencing right now, the river's at an all-time low, and the riverboats couldn't get up here over that. But they were, the majority of them were shallow draft boats, and they could uh, run a pretty slim water. In fact, one of the running jokes was that they would have a, a lookout on the deck, and he'd say, object ahead. The captain would say, what is it? And he'd say, it looks like a bunch of snags. And then he'd say, no. It's a flock of ducks. And the captain would say, oh, are they swimming or walking? And they're swimming, sir. Okay, well, there's enough water for us. <laughs> That's good. There's some le lessons to be learned about studying history for even us today. And what it tells me is that people had to be a lot more patient because maybe you wanted that shade locomotive delivered to you today. And we're, we've all gotten so used to same-day delivery with Amazon. That didn't occur back then. If you needed something delivered up, you might have to wait for the river to rise. Matter of fact, before the program, you were sharing a story about one particular time where a load was uh, loaded up on a barge and then they had to wait for the river to. You want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, that was uh, actually the last time uh, a riverboat came up to Duval, and that was uh, the Black Prince. And we had a mill here in Duval that never really got off the ground. It was, it was called the Big Mill. Uh, the official name of the Duval Lumber Company. And uh, when the town was first developing, they were using this big mill to sell lots and stuff because once this mill got into operation, it was going to be a lot of work. And they kept coming up with one excuse after another. And, uh, the mill never really 
went into production. The, the, the dry kiln and the planer was used by another lumber company that would haul their lumber over and finish it and use those facilities. But so finally they decided to sell off the, the boilers. There was four boilers in it and uh, they sold them off. So they brought a barge up, the Black Prince brought a barge up to load all this stuff on. And in the time that took to load the barges, the river dropped and they couldn't get the boat back <laughs> up to get the barge for quite a while. I think they finally cut the barge loose and let it drip down the river to a certain point. And then the Black Prince was waiting for it there and they threw a tow line on it and got it out of here. But the river was the most dependable form of transportation at that time, but it, it was not always dependable either. Uh, they had uh, numerous problems. I, I know another time they were trying to bring some logging equipment up and they could only get the boat up so far. So that what they did is they, they ran some lines up, up the river and attached them to stumps and they had a donkey engine on the, on the barge and they used the donkey to yard the barge up and then they'd get some men out and they'd haul the cable up to another stump or big tree and they, and they literally just lined the barge. That's a slow go. Yes, long, uh, long, very labor intensive way of doing it, but they want their logging equipment, like you said. <laughs> now, now the Black Prince uh, was a little bit uh, larger of a boat. Some of the boats that made frequent uh, runs up the river uh, early on, can you name any of those? Or what were basically their like dimensions comparable? The MAME was a, uh, a very early boat that came up and uh, it was built in 1887 and it was uh, captained by a Thomas McMillan. It had a capacity of 18 tons and mostly carried logging supplies up river and it carried hops on the way back down. There was a pretty good hop industry up in Soquamie and they used to bring the hops down by canoe to Fall City and then they had hop drying sheds there. And then from there they could load them into the, the ships. Uh, the Nelly was another uh, boat. It was 80 feet in length and a 19 foot breadth of beam and four four foot nine depth of hold. And the captain was a Captain Wright, and it was owned by Benjamin Stretch. And there's a, there's a section of the river called Stretch's Ripples down by Monroe that was named for him. The May Queen, another boat that came up here quite often. Uh, that was also captained by Thomas McMillan. Uh, the Echo was a small flat boat that uh, was only 50 feet in length, but it made pre frequent trips up to Cherry Valley. I, I have a photo of it sitting down below the swing bridge. The J.H. Vincent, that was built in 1891. It was 75 feet long, and it made trips uh, all the way up to Fall City. The city of Denver was the one that would come up and take hay out of the valley, and that would go to Seattle because Seattle had a uh, a lot of uh, horses that they used for various things in the town. And so they had big stables there. They would buy hay from the valley. T.C. Reed, that was a famous boat that brought a lot of logging equipment up. It brought most of the uh, ring uh, logging companies, locomotives and rails and stuff up. And uh, the Loma was probably the last boat to come up beyond uh, Duval to, go through, to pass through the swing bridge. And it went up to uh, uh, the Stewart Spur on the, on the Carnation Farms property and spent uh, a couple of weeks up there freighting uh, potatoes 
down to the spur so they could load them into railroad cars. And then it took the barges back down. And I have a picture of it going through the swing bridge for the last time that the swing bridge. Wow. And for a while, Carnation had some boats of their own that they used to take the canned milk down to the condensery. Yeah. And I think that they were glamorously na uh, named number one and number two or something yeah, like that. Yeah, Carnation right? number one and two. <laughs> Carnation number one worked on the Snoqualmie River and Carnation number two worked on the uh, Skycomie River. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. so the number... And uh, they would meet at uh, Highbridge and then they, there they would unload the milk into wagons and take it from, from wagon down the Tualco Road and then into Monroe to the condenser. Now, even though the weather uh, wouldn't allow to travel upriver all year round, when uh, it was possible, the riverboats got busy. They would actually, uh, I guess at sometimes that they made daily runs all the way to Fall City and back. Oh yeah. When the weather permitted, because there's things to haul. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, the boats would, would lay over up in Fall City uh, often there was a, a place called the Hans Moore Farm, where the river boats would tie off on the on their property and and lay over for the night to make the, the trip back down. It was hard enough to make the trip during the daytime because the river was constantly changing uh, the channels and stuff like that. So they didn't really want to be running on the river at night. That was a recipe for disaster because of the river not being dependable. You had a lot of orders being placed for things to come up the river. And uh, so then when the river was to a point where it's navigable, then you had all these back orders and stuff. So, yeah, you had probably had several boats all coming up at the same time with different orders. Now, let's talk about that for a moment. You talked about where they tied up. Uh, there was no ports at the time, if you will, that built common ones for common carriers to use. I would imagine things got shared maybe or something, but it probably was responsibility of those riverboat uh, owners to build their own facilities to actually like anything that would might resemble a pier or a dock on the river, right? Yeah, there there was often uh, small piers built uh, down on the river for farmers used to put uh, canned, canned cream and canned milk on those sails and then the carnation milk boat would swing in there and load those cans on. And uh, if there was any freight for that farm, that freight would be set off onto that little dock. Another way for some of the uh, early valley people to make some money on the side was to buck up firewood for the river boats. And they would stack the firewood along the shore and the river boat would pull in there. And, and it was in the four foot lengths of wood they chuck them in there, and then the uh, farmer would get a check in the mail or whatever. <laughs> I wonder if the captain was entrusted with petty cash, you could pay him right on the spot, or yeah, I don't know how they uh, how they did the payment thing, but, uh, but I know that that was a source of income for some of the farms that had uh, trees that were moving anyways, you know, to clear their fields, and so this was a good way to dispose of the wood and make some money on it. Yeah, yeah. So now, just approximately, so this is just really approximately. The first riverboat started uh, basically, what, in like 1870 or so? Yeah, I would say the 1870s, because most of these farmers up here, they, they got this land on, uh, they, it was a Civil War pension Homestead kind of a thing, yeah. really. And uh, so that would have been in the 1870s. And so there would have been a need at some point for boats to br bring finished lumber up to build houses and 
and then just basically everyday supplies. Uh, now the railroad came into Fall City, which really hurt uh, the traffic. Of the, the railroad came into Fall City, the MP did uh, later on, but to, to really uh, be direct transportation to the Carnation and Duval area, that was Milwaukee Road and the uh, Great Northern, which was uh, uh, 1910 issue, 1912, or something like that. So that means that the railroads actually had quite a run. Well, uh, three decades or so, I guess you could say, that the riverboats was the main uh, source. Now, there was some freighting done by wagon, but uh, again, the roads were not dependable, especially in the winter months. They just turned into mud quagmires. And so uh, there was a guy that was my neighbor when I was a kid named Cliff Pierman. And he ran a freighting business out of Monroe, and he would haul freighted wagons up up to Duval and stuff when the town was first starting to develop and stuff. And that would work for like a cast iron stove for your home or something like that, maybe. Yeah, but it doesn't yeah, work about anything. Uh, yeah. You you bought your stuff out of Sears Robot catalogs or whatever, and it came in those days by riverboat or by freight wagon, later by railroad, and then even later by UPS or whatever, mm. but but uh, I know Cliff told me that to get down to the swing bridge, it was quite a steep grade there, and he would have to chain uh, two wheels on his wagon to keep from the wagon running away going down that hill. Down the hill to get there. Wow. Well, hey, we'll take a break for just a moment, and when we come back, we'll continue talking about the history of uh, river boats on in the Snoqualmie Valley. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest eclectic music. Hi, I'm Seth Shostak, and I'm an actual scientist, although I don't wear a white lab coat. Maybe a straight jacket. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm a science journalist, and we are your hosts on Big Picture Science, bringing you the latest from the labs every week. So join us Thursdays at 6 p.m. for the coolest in science and technology, Big Picture Science. That's Thursdays at 6 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9 FM. Okay, welcome back. Here with Alan Miller, and we are talking about a history of uh, riverboats, which is just a fascinating. I think everybody would be totally awed to see one of these big uh, stern wheels. Well, that's part of the thing is we equate these to like river boats of the Mississippi or something we might have seen in movies and stuff. And these were stern wheeler boats, right, Alan? But they were not that big. I mean, they were built for this river. Yeah, they were not as big as the ones that, that, that worked the Mississippi River, but they were, for the most part, were uh, paddle wheel boats. There was even one called the Pearl that was a side wheel. But uh, the majority of them were uh, like what you see on the Mississippi with the big paddle wheel on the back of the boat. And that's what what uh, came up here to deliver everything from table salt to locomotives. The Black Prince was a beautiful looking boat. There's lots of documentation on that boat. Some of these other boats, though, I just think were so amazing because it's absolutely amazing that they were able to, Alan, to haul so much and have such a little draft. That just is amazing that they could make that, that they weren't submerged more than that in the, uh, into the river. Yeah, yeah, it, it is kind of amazing that uh, they can haul locomotives and 60 tons of railroad rail up here and still not draw that much water. They wouldn't be dragging their bottoms on the, the river. There was a boat, too, that, that would come up here 
It was called the Skagit, and it was a snag boat, and it would make runs up here, and it would pull out deadheads, which were logs that were one end of the log was sunk into the sand, and the other end was sticking up at an angle, and that was a menace to navigation because you hit that and poke a hole right through your hole. Oh, yeah. So the, the schedule was up here to, to get those because a lot of logs were floated down the river also. Uh, you had several big logging camps up here in the valley, and they just uh, would turn the logs loose willy-nilly, and uh, some of them would hang up and become deadheads and so those had to be taken out and then they would also uh, rescue stranded logs on the beach and get those back into the water so they could get down to the mill so the loggers could get paid for their their work and uh, the Skagit had a uh, a big pipe that stuck up above the deck that went actually went through the deck and they could force it down into the river bottom and it would serve as an anchor so that the boat could be anchored in the in the river, and then they could yard out stumps and and uh, deadheads and stuff. And uh, well, that's rather amazing because it, if any of you have any kind of boating experience, you know that anchoring a boat can be kind of a process. Yes. So just throwing a pole down into the dirt does it pretty efficiently. Yeah, and when I was a kid living down on the river, there was a clay shelf in the river up above where I lived. And there was a hole in that shelf that was made from that boat. At one time, they were anchored there, and they punched, literally punched a hole through the clay. And us kids used to dive into that hole and then come wow. out underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But because it was clay, it you know, basically survived all those uh, decades. Now, now uh, let's talk for a moment. When they're bringing something as big as a, a Shea locomotive, which was for those of you that might listening might not know, these those were small little engines that were made for the narrow gauge uh, railroading that was associated with the logging that occurred here. But nevertheless, they were heavy because they were steam locomotive in their own right. How did they get them off the boat onto the shore? That seems like that would be an endeavor. Okay, they would come up to a, a place on the shore where they could uh, dock and then they would lay rail at an angle from the river up up along the, the shoreline until they could get up to the level of the uh, where the logging railroad was. And so they literally would fire up the locomotive and put steam on it. The logging company would usually have a yarder or something there to help with. They'd put a cable on the engine and then because it was a pretty steep grade to get up to the top of the bank. And then they would just literally run under their own steam up this makeshift railroad grade uh, and get it up to there. And then once they got it up there, then they could just lay rails and get it over to the actual main line of the line. So basically they extended the tracks onto the boat. Yep. Wow. Exactly. Wow. And and other heavy, uh, like, uh, I, I've said this three or four times, it's probably an overused example, but a cast iron uh, oven or something, They did they have any kind of booms or something like that they could swing things off a deck? No, I don't think so. They probably... Uh, they probably would bring a wagon down the same way that they did with the locomotive and load it, load it, that stuff into the wagon and then take it on up the, to the top of the bank. And the uh, fuel, like you said, these uh, stopped uh, frequently to buy fuel wood. Uh, they were all, was there any of these that were powered by anything but firewood or any of them steam powered? Do you know? I mean, uh, coal powered. They were all steam. I, yeah, I, I think that, I think it was all wood because we weren't much of a coal 
manufacturing right area right. around here. They, they had some coal in King County and stuff, but uh, Stonish County is, was uh, pretty much all wood, I think. And even though the the efficiency of boats is really high because uh, and it still is because there's little uh, friction in the water. Still, these engines were big engines, right? They were pushing these things along. Yeah, yeah, I think they would have to be. Uh, there was one boat called the Grace G that was a, a instead of a paddle wheeler, it was actually a screw propeller powered boat. And that boat was owned by the Cherry Valley Logging Company, and they used that to uh, break up log jams and stuff like that. The, the Duval Swing Bridge was frequently uh, get logs crossways on it, and then the other logs would start piling up. And they had log jams sometimes that stretched a mile and a half up the river before they finally got some equipment down there to break them up and get them moving again. Oh, wow. Yeah, this would be really dangerous. And I would imagine trying to break that log jam up could be very hazardous, too. Yeah, they uh, they sometimes they use dynamite to blow the logs apart and get them moving. But generally, they would have to either bring down a big uh, yarder and just literally, like, pick up sticks, pick a log that think is a key log and try to yard it out of there and then get some more moving. And then they'd hang up again because the river was so choked with logs by that point that they just have to keep repeating the process until they whittle them down. And I know that there was a couple of timers in the valley that literally walked a mile and a half up the river on these logs and never touched water. Wow. They also would ship a lot of uh, Cherry Valley Log Company up in Stillwater, used to cut a lot of telephone poles and telegraph poles. And they'd be in the water with the logs, also pilings. And when they get those log jams, like that, those telephone poles would get popped out of the water by the big logs. They would squeeze it so hard that these poles would literally jump out of the water and land up on the bank. Wow. Like, like squeezing the watermelon seed between your fingers. Can you imagine all this happening in a, a, a river that's a habitat for a, a ecology wasn't too much of a concern back in those days, but surprisingly, heavy fish runs survived all this commotion somehow. Yeah, yeah. I, my grandmother told me that every little creek in the valley, every every fall was back-to-back salmon. You could walk on them practically to get across the creek. Right. So, yeah, despite all the industry going on, on the, in the river, it didn't seem to bother the, the fish any. It's more things we've done in modern times. It's killed it off. Yes. You told me, you told me one story some time ago about a... Uh, uh, there were a couple flumes in the uh, in the valley, which are basically a water slide for logs. Uh, I would imagine those could be pretty hazardous to a riverboat. Yeah, they uh, uh, sometimes they had a a warning with a bell. They they would ring a bell when they get ready to turn logs loose on the chute. I know one of the more famous chutes was down belonged to Pendleton Logging Company. It was down. Uh, just north of the county line a little ways. And you can still see the ravine there where that that uh, chute came down to the river. And sometimes those logs would come down at such a speed that they would literally go clear across the river and stick in the sandbank on the other side. Yeah, if they if some of them were greased and some of them actually had water in them, right? As like a water flow. Yeah. Now, uh, there was a mill called the CB Shingle Mill that was down on the river at a place called Rocky Point down between uh, Duval and Monroe. And they had a, a water flume that came, that brought their shingle bolts down to the river. 
and they had a mill right on the river there, and then they had booms there that would contain the shingle bolts, but the bolts would come down a, a water flume. And I know that when my uh, grandparents would make a trip to Monroe in the wagon, when they'd come to that flume, they'd they'd uh, give the horse an extra giddy up because it, it leaked water on, oh, out of the flume, oh, and they so get they get wet up. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It's interesting. That's interesting. So uh, uh, back to the uh, actual riverboats, uh, uh, the Black Prince, uh, it was big enough. And some of the other ones that were a little bit larger, let's say over 70 foot, the likelihood of them going much past Carnation, even back then was pretty nil, right? There were smaller boats that went up uh, past that. Uh, yeah. Is there any evidence the Black Prince ever actually went much past the Duval? No, I don't know that the Black Prince ever went any further than maybe Stewart. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I say Stewart because the Cherry Valley Logging Company had a landing up there. And so I think the Black Prince brought a lot of logging supplies before the railroad came into the valley. Um, but yeah, I think Tolt was the uh, pretty much the terminus for most of the boats and then the smaller lighter draft ones could get up to Fall City, but that was a, a hazardous uh, journey from Fall City. And so I think only the most- Agile uh, boats. That well, were, and, the, and the captains that were the best captains. like Because there's a heck of a lot of curves to that area. Yeah. I floated that as a kid. And I've, I've seen a couple of pictures of the May Queen laying on her side. On her side. Yeah, there, yeah. Where, where she didn't quite make it. One of the smallest boats to come up the river was called the Brick. And it was only 40 feet long from the jack staff to the paddle bucket. So it was a small, for a, for a paddle wheeler, it was a very small boat. Wow. Uh, but it was a steam boat. Yeah. Uh, it was built in 1883. Um, I saw a picture of it up in the Bellingham area one time. Uh, another boat that came up was called the Cherry Valley. And it was launched in October 1910. And it was owned by Charlie Amos. And it could haul 25 tons of freight and was and had a very shallow draft, so it could pretty much run at all stages of the river. But unfortunately, it uh, sunk at the dock after only a few runs. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, Joshua Green, who later on became uh, uh, president of what became People's Bank and other things, it's quite everybody heard of the Green Mansion in Seattle, quite the figure of history in Seattle's history. He really made his big start with the riverboats. Uh, but I thought that those were mostly around the Skagit, right? Did he own any boats that came up here? I don't think so. I think mostly around the Skagit. And then that's when he got into the Black Ball Ferry mm -hmm. operations. Which well. is, for those of you might not know, they're listening. That's a predecessor to the Washington State Ferries. Right. Yeah, they operated until like early 1950s, I think, as a private company. Yeah. Well, one thing... Uh, that I'd like to probably touch on just real quickly before we uh, end this program is we never really talked about the fact that this being kind of the only gig and because there was a heck of an investment in these boats and there was a lot of risk, I would imagine that the freight was pretty high. Yeah, I think they probably could charge pretty much whatever they wanted to haul it up here. Arthur Hicks that ran the Hicks' store up here in Cherry Valley before the railroads came through. All of his uh, supplies had to come up by boat. And he had a rather arduous way of, of ordering his supplies. He would get up before daylight and literally hike 
from Cherry Valley over to Kirkland. From there, he kept a ferry across Lake Washington to, to um, Madison Street, I think, where he caught a streetcar. And he would go to uh, Cooper and Levi in Seattle and order his supplies. And then he would uh, catch a ride on, a, on any boat he could get to come back to Cherry Valley. And then when his supplies were put together, they would bring it up here and oh, wow. unload it. Yeah. So that's how he kept his store stocked. Yeah. And when the railroads came into the valley here and the town started to develop and all these uh, stores got built, it was uh, kind of like the last heyday for the riverboats because they, a flurry of them came up here bringing supplies for all these different stores that were in, in town that were about ready to open because the railroad wasn't quite ready to, to, to running yet. And so the riverboats got a lot of uh, last-minute uh stuff in 1910 to, to supply the, the new town of Duwalt. And many of them were like ending their useful life of construction because they ran for a couple of decades and and that's hard work and that was kind of the end of the Riverwood area. Well, I guess that uh, we're, we're about out of time. So I think if there's a lesson to be learned here, it's that people had to have a lot more patience maybe than we do nowadays. Uh, you had to kind of work with the weather back then and couldn't expect it. You could call them and have same day delivery. That's for sure. And freight prices were probably considered to be very high for some of that thing, but there was not too many other choices. So interesting, interesting, fascinating history of uh, the Snoqualmie Valley is the first form of transportation, uh, the river boats. And uh, Alan, I sure do appreciate your time talking to me about it today. Yeah, it certainly was different times back then. Uh, yeah. Glad to be here and be a part of it. It's uh, interesting history for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you, Alan. And that concludes uh, today's broadcast. Tune in next week while we continue to uh, learn about the history of the Sequoia Valley. Thanks, folks. <laughs>